and um, massive tank slapper. Um, one of only two crashes when I, with the benefit of hindsight, I can genuinely say the only way to avoid it would to have been not to have got on the bike that day. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 219, Warren Pohl is back to talk about motorcycles and the Ultimate Biker Challenge. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. So on today's episode, I've got Warren Pohl. You guys probably remember hearing Warren on episode 204 with Kurt. They talked about ultra marathons and Warren's company, 33 Shake. Uh, we're going to talk about 33 Shake in a little bit, but I wanted to talk to Warren about motorcycles. As you guys know, this is my big passion. And if it's on two wheels and it has a motor, I'm all kinds of into it. So Warren, Motorcycle journalist, uh, entrepreneur, ultra marathoner, you have quite the adventurous lifestyle. So, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back, Travis. This is, uh, and I'm really looking forward to uh, diving into motorcycles because that is a subject that I don't get to geek out about as much as I used to, and I'm, I'm missing it a bit. <laughs> well, let's do it, man. I, I love talking about motorcycles too, so it should be a, a fun, quick chat. So first of all, when it comes to motorcycles, I absolutely love to hear the story about how people got into motorcycles. I got into it as a kid, riding a little Trail 50, and then ultimately up to a, a Honda Passport when I got my, my motorcycle license. That was the first vehicle I got to actually drive on the road with. Um, were you a an early adopter as a kid, or was it later in life when you finally got into motorcycles? Uh, for, for me, it was it was in my blood before I even knew what it was. Um, and we had in, in the house that I, I grew up in where, from where I was born, um, the guy next door had a scooter, a little, little Honda cub and me age one and a half, two was obsessed with it and had, had no idea why just, just drawn to it like a magnet. And, uh, one of my first words subsequently became motorcycle and the obsession never, ever went away. My parents dearly hoped it would. Um, not that they were unsupportive, but they were not, uh, let's just say they weren't positive on motorcycles at the time and <laughs> not having a background in them. They didn't really know how I could, you know, they weren't keen to encourage it in any shape or form. So, um, they hoped that would go away and it completely didn't. And my, uh, job at the local garage finally allowed me to scrape enough money together when I was 17 to buy uh, 125cc road legal dirt bike, a Kawasaki KMX 125. And uh, I was away. I had, you know, 14, 15 years of being obsessed with motorcycles and unable to express it in any way. I had a lot of time to make up for. And uh, I, I really got stuck in from, from that moment onwards. Yeah, I'm sure. So your foray into, I mean, you have the interest, but your first foray into it is actually a street legal bike. How did that go as far as the learning curve? Did you have any, it doesn't sound like you had any kind of lessons or training before getting into it. Uh, so they had just introduced what's called compulsory basic training in the UK, um, which is going to date me as, uh, as old to plenty of people, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so I had a day of riding around some cones. I had illegally, uh, illegally, that's a very strong word, but I had, I'd borrowed my mate's 50cc moped. I'd learned to ride that in the garden and then ridden that around on the road a bit. Um, 
But yeah, I I was as green as they come, and I'm sure I was very lucky on a number of occasions. Um, but no, nothing, nothing untoward went wrong, other than my own stupidity, or let's say lack of knowledge. It was a few weeks in, and uh, I got new tires for my bike, and I thought new tires that must mean absolute the finest grip in the world. So I'm going to see how far I can really lean this bike over. And, and four corners later, obviously, I was underneath it because. Uh, as anyone who does ride motorbikes will know, brand new tires are the slipperiest thing on earth, and you might as well be riding on ice. <laughs> yeah, they are a little slick and greasy when they come out of that mold. You're right. If you don't, yeah. uh, if you don't scrub them in, you're going to go for a for a ride, an unintended ride on the side. Well, I That's love exactly, uh, exactly what I did. Yeah, I love uh, hearing about how people adopted it as kids and, and how we look over at the neighbor and you think, oh, that's the coolest guy on earth because he's got a motorcycle. I have a, a little boy next door, and every time I bring out one of my motorcycles to, to wash it or get ready to go on a ride, you know, a lot of times I'll look over and there he is standing in his bay window just looking out, and you can tell, you know, that kid, that kid's going to be a motorcycle rider someday. So <laughs> it's, it's just there, isn't it? Some kids, you can, you can plonk them on the seat of a motorcycle, they have no interest. Interest. It's like nothing is registered. Others will be dragging you to the garage to get on the motorcycle, even if they don't really know why. And and that's I, I was the latter kid, and, and clearly you were as well. Yeah, absolutely. So your 125cc dirt bike ultimately brought you to racing somehow. How did you end up racing motorcycles after that? Well, that that really came about through through the journalism, which came about through the motorcycling obsession, which was um, I, I was just leaving university and I'd had a few bikes by then, all, all fairly small, obviously. And um, a friend of mine said to me in the pub one night, he said, if you could have any job in the world, what would it be? And that was a revelation. I'd never looked at a career like that before. You know, careers advisors don't teach you to think like that. I thought, wow, yeah, if I could have any job, I'd be one of these motorcycle journalists who are in these magazines I'm always reading because they get to fly all over the world. They ride all of the best bikes and they just appear to live and breathe motorbikes 24-7. It's perfect. Um, so I, I went and I, I applied to go and do that. And um, I managed to get myself onto a magazine by saying I really loved journalism and I really loved motorcycles. And at the time, only one of those things was true. Um, it was the motorcycles. I, I really couldn't have cared less about journalism, but you can't get a job on a magazine without saying that. <laughs> right. um, and as it turned out, I did love journalism. Whoever knew? Um, and that that turned out, you know, that was a whole that really formed the biggest part of my career before before we formed the nutrition company. But when you work on a motorcycle magazine, I worked on a couple. I'd ended up on one called Superbike, which was a, a sport bike magazine, um, very focused. And I was on track a lot testing. I was riding loads of superbikes. I was meeting a lot of people who raced. I was meeting a lot of the professional guys. And it just sort of, it was only at that stage one step away from what I was already doing. And what do you know, Suzuki were running a, a ludicrous one-make series uh, for the Suzuki 1200 Bandit. It was a race series that was going to follow one of the national championships around as a support race and these mildly converted Suzuki 1200 Bandits, it was like a fleet of bombers going into turn one. Um, <laughs> and I think they were about as easy to, to steer. And that was, my, that was my first season. I came back from holiday, and the editor said, oh, uh, you're going racing next season. And that was it. I, I got the ticket, um, and he, he put me up for it. And uh, I will always thank him for that, because 
that was my foray into racing and I, I got three glorious seasons beyond that um, on various bikes and just one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. It, it was phenomenal. Wow. So your racing career started out on a Suzuki Bandit. I've never ridden one, but my understanding is they kind of, we, we kind of look at them as maybe a, uh, an entry level or a poor man's sport tourer, you know, that, that uh, that's kind of how the bike is set up. Not so much racer, huh? Not so much racer. No, you're, you're absolutely right. The, um, the only mods that this one had, I mean, the, the engine's got a lot of punch because it's the bottom end is the, uh, out of the original GSX-R1100. Um, so that's, that's got some punch to it. Uh, but the, yeah, I mean, it's a big wobbly old frame and, and they sort of put flat bars on them, took the bodywork off, jacked the back end up a bit, changed the gearing and, and put a pipe on them. And that was it. And um, my first introduction to its limits came when I, I bottomed out the forks going into the hairpin at Donington, I think it was, and was very quickly wondering why I was on my face going down the track without my bike, <laughs> because there was just no, there was nothing left to soak up the braking force. And uh, then at another occasion, I think it was five corners into the only race my parents ever came to see, certainly my mum, my dad did come back for a couple but my mum came to one, and it was at Brands Hatch, and it was five corners in, and I managed to, well, all but destroy the bike. It, it caught the curb as I came off at the uh, the left-hander and um, went end over end seven times, according to the nice marshal nearby who picked me up. And I, I just remember going into one of those barrel rolls that never seems to end and sort of trying to clutch my arms in. And I just had this mantra going through my head as it, everything went earth sky, earth sky, earth sky. And it was just not the collarbones, not the collarbones, not the collarbones. I was just waiting for a collarbone to snap. And miraculously, nothing did. But by that point, I was then on the infield. I had to wait for the end of the race. My mum is sort of standing there going, why hasn't he come past again? And slowly having kittens. And, um, yeah, bless her. She, she saw the bike come back before she saw me and she was very surprised to see me walking after she saw that. And oh, that was, bet. that was the only, that was the only race she ever came to. Um, <laughs> and I can't understand that, but uh, the band, it was an utterly impractical and ridiculous motorcycle to be racing, which was what made it such a great introduction to actually trying to race. Oh, that's cool. Cool. So you, uh, like you said, you had gotten into that uh, bandit racing because of your journalism career. Now your journalism career also, um, landed you a, a show or your own show on the discovery channel called the ultimate biker challenge. How did that all come about? You just, well, you just it... walk in and ask for a show. Is that that simple? <laughs> well, I, I actually have, um, uh, there's a, there's a certain TV presenter you may have heard of him. He's, he was been on a little show called top gear and his name is Richard Hammond. Uh, I have had, I have him to thank for all of that, basically. <laughs> Neat. Do do tell. <laughs> so um, before Richard Hammond was um, incredibly famous and had the best job in the world on Top Gear, um, he was incredibly unfamous and had one of the worst TV jobs in the world on a, a very low rent cable channel that nobody watched really because even though it had a lot of motoring programming. Um, after 9 p.m. at night, it switched to adult programming. So most people were kind of watching, waiting for it to change. Uh -huh. um, and so Richard Hammond was on this channel. Um, but then he got this job on Top Gear. And I can't think why for the life of me. He decided to take the Top Gear job over the late cable 
and that left a vacancy. And because I had been pestering them, because I just figured that a lot of motorcycling TV was awful, and um, with the naivety and uh, energy, shall we say, of youth, I figured, well, I can definitely do a better job, despite having no proof that I could. Um, I'd been pestering them, and I got that gig. And and what that meant was that I was able to practice walking and talking, and, and you know, getting used to how TV worked, pretty much while nobody was watching. Um, and when the opportunity came along for the discovery series through a friend of a friend, because the, the motorcycling world is small. So plenty of people I knew, knew that this show was happening. They weren't involved in TV, but someone knew someone who'd heard about it and they'd suggested me and gave me a phone number. And I went along and did a screen test and bingo lucked out and, uh, landed that job. Oh, that's cool. Well, I think you did a great job, uh, on that with, uh, with the ultimate biker challenge and from the clips I saw, I think you would have been great on top gear. They might've, uh, they might've looked at you a little bit harder. I think <laughs> that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> okay. So now we're on the ultimate biker challenge. We have our own show. Um, give me the format of the show or give the, the listeners a format of the show. What was the whole point of the show and what is it did, uh, that you did? Well, so the, uh, the format of the show was that, uh, I would take on, a different motorcycling race or event in a different motorcycling discipline in a different country in every one of 12 episodes. Um, and thus the roller coaster ride begun. Okay. So they have you going all around the world, trying different types of races and, and stuff on motorcycles. Um, I was looking at some of the clips and I came across the Erzberg rodeo in Austria and I was blown away, you know, by this, this, this race or this enduro. It's really a, a time trial, I guess. Um, because you guys just pounded yourselves. I mean, we're talking about over 600 competitors, uh, all trying to race this time trial out of this insane mine in Austria. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about how this thing came about and what the race is like. It was it was truly intense. Yeah, the the Erzberg is um, a, a true one of a kind. It may not be the the most extreme enduro in the world. I don't know, but if it isn't, it's certainly up there. Um, it's it's held in and around this open cast iron mine in in Austria. And you start in the base of the mine and have to climb about six near vertical scree slopes to even get out and begin the event. And that is the um, that's really probably the easiest bit of it. I mean, the attrition rate, I don't think even 10 percent of people finish. Um, and it's it's a world class field and a lot of very seasoned amateurs as well. Uh, it's a massive party. There's qualifying on the Saturday. Qualifying is not too bad. That's more of a sort of uh, a speed run up the up the sort of roads and dirt tracks of the mine. But the the event the next day is just brutal beyond belief. And I think it is a, a mixed blessing that I broke my wrist in the qualifying sessions, um, which meant I was unable to ride the full event the next day. That probably saved my life. Um, although the, the hospital in Austria didn't diagnose the broken wrist. They reckoned it was fine. And, um, it took until nine months later for, uh, several specialists later and a Harley Street's top hand surgeon took one look at the x-rays and went, well, I can tell you why your hand's still not working properly. <laughs> it's cause you broke your wrist. But by that time the series was done. So I did the entire series on a broken wrist. Oh, I'm sure the producers appreciated that. You know, you just ride this one out, Warren, uh, 
<laughs> to take care of your I, broken I think the producers later. were slicking, slipping the specialists a few backhanders, you know. <laughs> wow, it's intense. So I imagine there are some shows that you filmed that you're in true pain. Uh, I think uh, it was very good experience for getting out of my comfort zone. Um, because whereas the, the circuit racing had, had sort of pushed me another level, um, but you know, I was doing a lot of track testing already. So it was kind of one step forward. And whereas it was road bikes versus race bikes, the, the differences were small, but it, during this series that there, there just wasn't one where I could, could relax. So I got thrown into the Erzberg. I got, I, I had to ride, I rode in the ice speedway in, uh, Sweden and for anyone who hasn't seen that, that's like riding. It's a bike with no brakes with um, a hundred, I don't know, what are they, um, 15, 20 centimeter long iron spikes uh, in in the tires. So it's effectively like riding a bike that has a chainsaw at both ends. <laughs> I mean, and, and it wasn't like, oh, well, we just put you in a small event. I had to ride it in the national final in a stadium. Um next to some guy who was the reigning champion. And then there was, there was sidecar motocross where also that was in Holland sidecar motocross. I was the passenger for that. And the, uh, again, we lined up in an event and the world champions were next to us. Like I've never done this before. Um, there was the European stunt riding championship in Hungary, which, um, that was, that was one I enjoyed. That was a lot of fun. Um, I managed to qualify for that, which was about, about my limit wow. after that. They said, great. Now it's the freestyle routine. I'm like, you've just seen everything I can do. <laughs> You're going to see it all over again. Then <laughs> I, I can do the same thing again, but I don't have much left to add to this. Um, that was trials riding. Uh, I think that was in the Czech Republic. Maybe that the, the hill climb. I don't know if you saw that one, the Monte Impossible hill climb in France. That was the most ridiculous motorcycle I, I have ever ridden. I think even, next to a turbo Hayabusa or, or anything. It's, it's the only bike. I mean, even a factory superbike. I rode several of those things. I was very, very fortunate to try out some of those. And just this hill climb bike that some crazy Frenchman had built in a shed, and it genuinely looked like something off Mad Max. It had a swing arm that went pretty much into the next county because the course is so steep. The back wheel has to be about a mile behind you to keep the front anywhere near the floor. It had a Harley engine in it, and I don't know what he'd done to it, but the torque was fabulous. It's clearly never going to wheelie in a month of Sundays on the flat. So when you launch it, the added fun is there are steel paddles all around the back tire. It dug in like never, uh, nothing I've ever felt, and I could not hold on to it off the line. If you ever have a dead man's lap on a bike, which, you know, the kind of thing that cuts the engine when you come off. It wraps around your wrist and then it, it goes onto the kill switch as a little uh, sort of modification. Cuts it when you come off. They that, they had that on the hill climb bike, the ice speedway bike, and the speedway bikes that I rode. I learned whenever anyone's giving you one of those, you know you're in for a really hard weekend. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good indication. <laughs> well, I can't imagine one of those speedway bikes with those spikes or even this this Harley hill climber with the paddles on it. If that thing gets away and the, the throttle happens to stick open, I mean, one, you're going to be glad you oh. came off of it. But, man, you know, who knows where that thing's going to head. It could, uh, it could probably ruin a few people's day. I, it really could. If you look at the course, was basically, I think they've had to move hill recently, but um, well, I say recently, probably the last five years. But the one it was back then, it was basically like a motocross track carved into a vertical hillside. And it, it was hang on and, and hope. And what they would do, pretty much no one made it up because it was impossible. Um, they had people hanging from the hill faces, 
holding um, massive hooks on ropes. And when inevitably people turned their bikes upside down and started to disappear back down the hill, um, you know, literally tumbling back down, these guys would swing these hooks out and catch a front wheel or a foot peg or whatever and stop the bike following them down. (laughs) Wow. I mean, it's like, really, it's like something out of across between Mad Max and Lord of the Rings, both the Erzberg and the the Monte Impossible hill climb. It's, uh, yeah, they were... They were memorable. <laughs> wow. A lot, of, a lot of safety considerations factored in on that sanction event. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, the guy who won it, um, he was American. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, I'll dig that out for you. But he, he was he was great. They, they was him and his dad and his brother, and they were they were just super. They had a really slick setup, and he, he made it look – almost made it look easy. I'm 99% certainly won the event that day. Wow. Wow. That's cool. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. This is Colorado nature photographer John Fielder. This holiday season, consider giving the gift of Colorado. I have an extraordinary 6,000-square-foot gallery in Denver's Art District on Santa Fe Drive. This season, I've framed for display my favorite and latest Colorado wilderness images. The detail inherent in these seven-foot prints from recent summer treks into the Weminucci and Ragged's Wilderness series will make you feel like you were right next to me when they happened. And my new prints from last year's remarkable fall color season will add warmth and a focal point to any home or office setting. The gallery has a full selection of my popular Colorado books, calendars, and holiday and note cards. Most are signed personally by me. My latest book is Wildflowers of Colorado, a collection of my favorite wildflower images made over the past 20 years. I even discuss where I go to photograph the best wildflower meadows in northern, central, and southern Colorado. Just don't tell me if you get a better photo than me. The gallery is located in Denver at 833 Santa Fe Drive. We're open Tuesdays through Saturdays, 9 to 5. Visit johnfielder.com for complete information about the gallery, print pricing, to see all of my books and calendars, and to learn about the photography workshops I'll teach around Colorado in 2017, and even the one at Alaska's Inside Passage next July. That's at johnfielder.com.
So doing the ultimate biker challenge, what would you say was the most difficult um, thing that they had you do on that show? The the most difficult one was Speedway, uh, actual dirt Speedway. Um, so that would be like uh, it's like a bit similar to flat track in uh, in the US there, but with a, a much lighter bike, uh, no brakes, uh, single cylinder, five hundred cc, loads of torque. But when you see Speedway, um, you know it's on a dirt oval, and it looks like uh, obviously the back lets go, and then you drift the bike on the throttle around the corner, power down the straight, drift it, power down the straight, drift it. All very simple. You would assume that the front wheel grips while the back wheel doesn't, and clearly that's not true. Neither grip, um, and so it's only your body position and, and ability with the throttle that keeps you going. And it is, it's all but impossible. And the only way to accelerate my learning curve enough to be able to take part in the event that I was due to take part in with 24 hours of practice, actually, no, I lied, 48 hours of practice. So I had two days, um, was to crash repeatedly. And they counted them up in the, in the reel afterwards. It was 27 crashes in two days. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but the, um, the best moment, and bear in mind, this was in Poland, uh, in a place called Gniezno, which is um, a little more remote than some of the bigger cities. Not not tiny, but not big. And um, the guy who was coaching me didn't speak any English. And I don't speak any Polish. So, you know, a lot of gestures. And, but the one thing he did say to me repeatedly, as I dusted myself off and, and got up yet again, he'd come over and make that gesture that any biker would recognize with, with his right fist. And he would say, more gas. <laughs> and I knew I was getting somewhere when at one point there I was, I'm drifting, everything is sideways, I'm on the throttle and I can feel that it's starting to go and I'm, I'm not going to get it back. But for some reason, you know, everything went into slow motion as it does when you're falling off. And, and I, I had enough time to think, well, I've just more gas. And I kept the throttle open. I kept it open. But then I was going backwards, but I'm still on the bike. And I just had to let go of things and the bike disappeared sort of over my head and I went into the bales at the side. And as I dusted myself off and got up, he came over to me smiling and he said, less gas. Said, yes, I'm getting somewhere. <laughs> this is a, this is a effort of trial and error for sure. <laughs> it really <was>. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, I saw that you ran in one of the early GS trophies for Britain. Is that right? Uh, I did, yeah, 2010 that was. That was my last competitive outing, I think, on a bike. Was it? Okay, so this was for uh, Team Britain. And the interesting thing that that I noticed was what you guys were doing them on F800 GSs. Is that <laughs> And they didn't, so I didn't realize they didn't start out on the, the R1200. Absolutely not. No, it was, it was F800 GSs certainly the year before I did it. They were running it, I think, every two years at the time, so... 2008, 2012, um, they, yeah, they were definitely on, on 800 GSs, which is, uh, that, that's what we had. Um, and I was lucky enough to get through two of them. Wow. I would, uh, yeah, that's what I read is F800 GS. And I'm thinking I would much rather that <laughs> in the GS trophy than the, <laughs> been the big one. But so how is that? How was, what were your experiences from running the GS trophy? You guys won, yeah. didn't you? We did. I mean, that, that was another experience of a lifetime because the, uh, it was the journalist ticket again. Um, so there was Team GB, all the teams, uh, riders, it was amateur riders from each country who then went through a series of heats that were held nationwide in, in each country to find the best three. Um, and then those three 
would get to compete as Team GB, and each team had an embedded journalist. Um, now, the journalist clearly had to know one end of a bike from another because he had to ride with them. And what we then found when we arrived, which hadn't been made to me, clear to me, was that journalists were also going to be scoring some points, and you had to come in at the same time as your team, so they're not going to wait for you. Oh, so really? Effectively, there we are. You know, I am an embedded journalist. I'm not scoring as many points as the rest of the guys, but I got to keep up and I got to keep my end up. And they're all really, really good. <laughs> and um, it was another um, accelerated learning curve. You know, I'd, I'd ridden off road. I'd certainly. I didn't even have a car till I was 30. I'd spent so long jumping on and off different bikes continually in different situations for like 10 years by then that it wasn't a big drama to adapt, but it was a massive, massive step up for me. Um, we were doing days through deep sand. So this was in South Africa. We started in, if I remember, Johannesburg, and we went down through around South Africa, down towards Swaziland and Mozambique. And uh, wow, what a way to see a country uh, yeah, through the countryside there. You know, quite literally, we had to stop at one point. There were elephants crossing um, the trail, so we, we couldn't get through there. There were, um, there were some long days in deep sand. And wow, that is that's not an easy one to learn quickly when you need to just get a move on. No, it's um, not. And, and a lot of very fast sort of fire trail and dirt roads. And, and in between, they'd throw in different challenges, whether it was wheel change or canoe race or an obstacle course or some of the some of the challenges were also bike related and there were time trials and things. So, um, yeah, it was I mean, just a, an incredible experience. And I think as Team GB, uh, we went into the lead probably two or three days in and we held it right the way through and we won the thing by one point at the end and i i still have the trophy now it's a it's a very proud addition on myself that i would bore anyone with if they ever dare ask about it. <laughs> that's great that's quite the accomplishment i didn't realize yeah that they were gonna include the the journalist in as as part of the the crew i mean embedded is one thing to cover it but they're relying on you to to finish with them to make sure that they win so that's a that's a pretty serious accomplishment uh, it was it was one crazy adventure, and the um, to, to add spice to it, I, I was just starting to think, as you know, I've been doing a bit more dirt riding, it was going well, and I thought, you know, I was considering, is, should I should I think about doing Paris Dakar because, you know, I knew people who were keen to put together teams or do something, and there might have been an opportunity if we'd have found some money somewhere, and I'm starting to think, yeah, that Paris Dakar, that that could be next and and clearly pride comes before a fall and the next day i had the <laughs> single biggest crash i have ever been lucky enough to walk away from uh 80 mile an hour down a fire dirt road that was very narrow it had a dirt bank on one side it had a barbed wire fence on the other Ooh. and it was full of uh, like rocks sticking up through the through the hard pack and um massive tank slapper um one of only two crashes when i with the benefit of hindsight i can genuinely say the only way to avoid it would to have been not to have got on the bike that day. All the others I know were my fault. Um, and yeah, off I came and uh, the bike ended up in a field uh, several, I don't know, 100 meters away or something. I was somehow went arrow straight down the middle of the trail, didn't hit the barbed wire, didn't hit the bank, didn't hit any of the dirt rocks and um, got up again. There was a lot of blood pouring out my sleeve, but it, it turned out to be I needed two stitches. Oh, and I had a camelback in my jacket that had burst, so there was all this kind of wet all over me, and I couldn't work out what that was, which was a bit disorientating. Um, 
but yeah, so that that probably very fortunately again saved my life and put put paid to me deciding to do the Paris Dakar, uh, or at least put it put it on ice long enough for me to mature a little and think uh, maybe I probably had enough of my nine lives used up over the last ten years. I'll I'll do do some running instead. But um, the next day, so it was the final day, and my bike was was toast. So BMW very kindly rolled out a fresh one and slapped some more numbers on it, and that was actually my birthday that day and it was the first time i got a new bike for my birthday since i was about 12 i think so wow it was a, it, it was it was great and uh the the guys who on the team were great. just a a very intense bonding experience for everyone involved living in tents by night riding through africa by day uh sometimes terrified sometimes elated sometimes exhausted um just pushed beyond your limits and in the most marvelous company and situation, it was a full Technicolor dream show. It really was. Yeah, that sounds like an absolute blast. Very cool. Well, I want to give you another chance to, uh, you know, in trade for your time and tell me about some of the stuff that you experienced, uh, to talk about 33 Shake a little bit. So um, remind our listeners what 33 Shake is and, and how it came about. Yeah, sure thing. So after the... Uh... After the motorcycling and, and the journalism and everything, and, and there were a lot of things going on there, but my, I somehow I got into running ultra marathons, and I think that's because I just through through the racing and through the various the, the biker challenge, I sort of kept pushing myself to do new things, and I, I was looking for the next new thing unconsciously, and ultra marathon running came along, and I started doing that. But as I did, and I got very seriously into it over the last seven years, I was doing sort of five, six races a year, anywhere between kind of 30 and 80 or 100 miles, uh, normally in, in mountains. That's the kind of thing I like to do, running through the night, stuff like that. Uh, but nutrition is a very key part of that. And, and long story short, there was nothing I could find or my friends could find that didn't make us feel awful and perform worse. So um I started looking into, as a journalist, what's really in a lot of sports nutrition, and I, I really didn't like what I saw. Um, it might as well have been soda and candy and stuff like that. And that, that would explain why people didn't feel great using it. But it's like, how do we find a, a clean and natural alternative? And very long story short, uh, as that process continued, uh, my wife and another partner and myself, we started formulating our own products out of various superfood ingredients, you know, chia seeds and goji berries and flaxseed and spirulina and all that good stuff. Um, and they transformed what I was able to do and they transformed what friends of ours were able to do. And in 2012, we thought, wow, let's, let's see if anyone will buy this. And we, we opened a website. We were making the stuff in our kitchen Um and today, 33 Shake is open in 25 countries around the world. And we just had our American launch in January of this year. So um, another uh, incredible adventure, frankly. I, I could never have predicted that. I couldn't have predicted the motorcycle career coming on. And I certainly could have predi- couldn't have predicted starting a sports nutrition company. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's good for you. You just kind of stumbled into to things that have really uh, boded well for, for your life and career. That's awesome. So 33Shake, uh, the website is 33shake.com, right? It certainly is. And I believe we um, I had a code set up as well. So I, I think, do you still have that one there? If any of your listeners want to try the stuff out, there's a discount code they can use to uh, to try it out on the website. Um, yep. We'll actually have to go back and research that. I'll put that in the show notes, uh, under this episode when we post it, just to make sure people do, uh, do have it. And you guys can absolutely go back and listen to episode 
2004. Darn it, I keep saying that. You guys can absolutely go back and listen to episode 204 with Kurt about the ultra marathons and uh, and get that code as well. So very cool. Well, I uh, wish you all success. And I haven't tried the, the 33 shake samples you sent me. In fact, I'm heading out to Moab to go do some mountain biking uh, at the end of the week. So it's going to be the first time I give them a go. So I'm looking forward to, to giving them a try. What a perfect place to do it. I, I got one day's riding at Moab with a guide a few years ago. And as I'm sure you will know, one day really isn't enough. Is, is that pretty local for you then? Yeah, it's about five hours from me, but I consider that local. I mean, this is a, that is, this is a big area out here. So fi- driving five hours to go have some good adventures, not a big deal. That's well worth it. Wow, that, that sounds like a great day. Well, well, do enjoy that and, and let me know how, how they get on. And um, I look forward to, uh, well, to, to meeting you sometime. And who knows, maybe we get to go for a ride, eh? That would be a blast. Absolutely. Well, before we cut out and I'll let you go, I do want to see if I can't squeak in the story about a certain Rolls Royce Phantom across South America. I was pretty intrigued (laughs) with this one because normally if you see that title to an article, you're probably thinking a nice, smooth, paved road, you know, to enjoy a nice luxury car. But that wasn't quite the, the story behind this one, was it? Uh, no, that, that was not, that one was, um, uh, you know, journalism doesn't, doesn't pay well. Generally, it's not what, it's not a job. Freelance journalism particularly is not a job you go into for, uh, for the perks, oh, sorry, <laughs> not perks, for the, for the security. But if you, if you want to grab it by the horns, it's got a hell of a lot of venture of adventure it can offer. And this was one of the peachiest gigs and that's even after you know the seasons racing or the stuff with um the gs trophy or or things i've done in mongolia or antarctica this was um a a program sponsored by rolls royce so basically rolls royce provide the car and along with there was a an agency i was working for at the time they would provide a very small team quite literally one writer one presenter ideally the same person so that that was me doing both those jobs uh one cameraman one photographer um and and one support car and then we're going to create this this adventure and and what we did was we took it around the route of the Paris Dakar in South America it was the year the race was moving to South America between Argentina and Chile and we had like 10 days in a car that cost significantly more than my apartment <laughs> uh, driving around South America I mean, just just here's how surreal this was. We, uh, we we were flown business class to Argentina, and then on arrival in what is the it's the certainly the poshest hotel in uh, in the capital city there in Buenos Aires. It's called the Alvear Palace Hotel. I have my own suite. I have my own butler, and my butler came to me in a moment in life I will never forget. And she knocked on the door. Female butler knocked on the door. I opened the door. Mr. Pole, your Rolls Royce is ready for collection. Wow, you don't hear that too often. <laughs> That's not a moment that happens. You know, I came home and my van needed some work and I had <laughs> to do a bit of bit of tidying up in the house. But at that moment, my butler came to me in my suite in the best hotel in Buenos Aires and said, your Rolls Royce is ready for collection. And my first drive in that car, which was at the time £250,000, which... Well, the exchange rate's hopeless at the moment, so that's probably about worth about $10 these days. But it was worth a lot of money in those days. £250,000 car. I drove it through. There's a six-lane highway through the center of Buenos Aires, which is known as one of the busiest streets in the world. I had to drive it through there in Russia. Oh, that was my man. first drive in the car. And from there, it was a, an unforgettable 
10 days taking this thing around through Argentina and Chile over the Andes. And uh, we did. We, we off-roaded it in, in several places. Um, it does have a, a sort of uh, – there's an automatic switch that will raise it several inches for getting over speed bumps and things like that. But that turns out to be really helpful off-road. It kind of just floats. Um, and we didn't, we didn't wash it, which was part of the gig because Rolls-Royces are always seen pristine. Uh, and they're, they're tough cars. They're incredibly well-made pieces of engineering. You know, you, you are – you know, you're, you're paying for them, but they are – they are tough. Um, and this thing kind of looked like a builder's van by the time we were done with it. People were doing <laughs> double takes. It was perfect mechanical condition, but filthy, just full of sand and dust and everything else. And, uh, uh, yeah, another another pinch yourself moment. And I was, um, like I said, gave that back, flew home and got back in my van and thought, that's a little bit different. <laughs> what a dichotomy. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what a cool experience. That's why it's what I love about the van. I've had it forever. You know, you can't get a motorcycle in the back of a car, and the van keeps me honest because it doesn't matter. When people were lending me ridiculous vehicles, the van was just a constant, and I, you can't really compare it to anything else because, let's face it, Rolls Royces are good, but if you want to try and put a dirt bike in the back of a Rolls Royce, never going to happen. No, not at all. You probably, probably should skip that and keep the van. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper anyway. So. <laughs> All right, good deal. Well, that was a lot of fun. I had a had a blast listening to your stories, and uh, I, I want to hear more about it and what you uh, what you have planned for. But we'll have to cover that next time. So, I appreciate your time and uh, keep riding and keep running. We uh, we want to hear about it, Travis. It was a real pleasure. I look forward to uh, catching up with you another time and have a brilliant time in Slick Rock. I'm super envious about that. It's a day in the office in London for me tomorrow. So I shall be thinking of you out there on that uh, incredible mountain biking terrain. Well, sounds good. I plan on having some fun. (laughs) All right, buddy. (laughs) Thanks. We'll talk to you later. Great talking with you. All right, you too. While doing your holiday shopping this season, be sure to stop by 180tac.com and pick up a camp stove for the adventurer on your list. The 180 Stove and 180 Flame are made right here in the United States and are sure to make your loved one a happy camper. Visit 180tack.com today.